Good morning. It's nice to be back at Tyndale in your wonderful new campus. I've taught here before, but I'm very impressed by your new building, and I'm sure God will bless you as you expand your ministry into it. I'd like to talk to you today about lament. When I was a child, I sometimes felt miserable, as children do sometimes when they're sick, or a friend calls them names, or they've broken their favorite toy, or a long-awaited treat has been canceled, or maybe they're just lonely. And when I was miserable for one reason or another, I would complain and lament and whine. And my mother would often say to me, cheer up, England. I was born in England. I didn't see how that was supposed to help, though, because was I supposed to just will myself to cheer up? How was I supposed to get from misery to cheerfulness? I once heard an amusing story of a hiker who was lost in the Scottish Highlands and wanted to get back to his hotel. He met an old crofter in the hills and asked for directions, and the old man said, well, you could go up the valley. Well, I'm not sure about that, but, uh, and he tried again. Well, maybe you should go around the lock and up the hill. That, uh, and then he hesitated and thought a bit. And then he said, you know, he said, I'm not sure you can get there from here. Actually, God, with God, all things are possible. And that process involves lament. My mother, however, thought lamenting and complaining was pointless. You see, she was a 12-year-old child in England when World War II broke out. Our family lives in Portsmouth, a large naval base on the south coast. When the enemy aircraft flew over the channel to bomb London, they often flew directly overhead. But when they returned, they would drop any bombs that they had left over onto Portsmouth before flying back across the channel. And Portsmouth took devastating hits. Air raid sirens would sound. People would run for shelter. Bombs would explode around them, often at night. Numerous buildings and homes were destroyed. Many people were killed and injured, including some of our relatives and friends. You see the street on the right? My aunt and uncle live there. Fortunately, my aunt was pulled alive out of the rubble. People often slept in air raid shelters, and many children living in Portsmouth were eventually evacuated to the countryside, including my mother. It was during this time in the darkness of World War II that my mother picked up that expression, cheer up, England, from the adults around her. She used it throughout her life because it was one of the few coping strategies that she had. The Brits, you may know, are famous for their stiff upper lip attitude. You didn't just fall apart at the seams. That just wasn't done, especially during the war. It was important to keep calm and carry on so that the enemy would not believe that they were destroying our spirit. They sang, rule Britannia, Britannia rule the waves. Britons never, never, never shall be slaves. My mother wrote her memoirs of the war when she was well into her 80s. That's my mother and her mother there. This is one of her experiences. Mum and I went to the pictures once to the Carlton in Cosham High Street to see how green was my valley. And the siren sounded while we were in there. I didn't think it was a raid on Portsmouth or the building would have been evacuated. Mom said she didn't remember much of the film because she was listening for gunfire. Later, the Carlton received a direct hit and four people were killed. This was during a heavy raid on Portsmouth when 45 people were killed and 140 injured on December the 5th. The morning after a raid, you didn't know what you were going to see when you, on your way to work. She later explains, 
your people's morale was good. I have heard reports since of people being scared, but I never saw it. I'm sure, yeah, we were all frightened, but we didn't show it. Bomb-damaged houses and shops and board, had boarded up windows with signs saying business as usual on them. And there were even rude cartoons about Hitler in the papers. Well, yes, sometimes it's necessary to suppress your fear and bottle it up and put on a good face. But if you always suppress it, it can be extremely harmful. My mother suffered a great deal from depression in her later years. You see, she never learned how to express her fear, to, to, to cope with it and to move on. Unfortunately, this determined suppression of any expression of suffering is still common in the church today. Of course, we express joy and praise for God, God, what God has done for us, and certainly that there are many things. But sometimes it can get difficult and painful. We have only to recall the tragedies and atrocities that we hear on the news every day in the world recently. I'm sure I don't have to list them all for you, you know. Closer to home, we think of jobs and opportunities lost, friends lost through death or disagreement, and people becoming sick and growing old. When I was young and naive, we had a saying. We'd say, praise God anyway, even if we failed a test or even if a relationship broke up. We thought, we are Christians. We belong to God. He loves us. We should be happy. We have an obligation to be happy. After all, we're God's chosen people. No one spoke about the darkness and doubt that sometimes weighed us down. That would not be trusting God. So we put on a happy face, went to church every Sunday, and sang songs of praise, never laments. One of them was, great is thy faithfulness, great is thy faithfulness. Morning by morning new mercies I see. All I have needed thy hand hath provided. Great is thy faithfulness, Lord, unto me. People may know this is taken from the book of Lamentations, chapter 3, 22 to 24, which says, The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. What not everyone knows is the literary context of this passage in the book of Lamentations. You see, Lamentations expresses the pain of another city during another terrible war many centuries ago one that led to the fall of Jerusalem in 586 BCE. The city was under siege for several years. People were starving. People were suffering terribly. They too, like us, thought they were God's special people, under his protection, and that their city was inviolable. Their songs of Zion were their take on our rural Britannia. The British, at least, came out of World War II on the victor's side. Israel in 586 BC didn't. Their faith suffered a devastating blow when the temple, the place of Yahweh's presence among them, where heaven and earth met, was destroyed and desecrated in front of their own eyes, and God did nothing to stop it. They cried out to Yahweh, they confessed their sin, they asked for mercy, and the only response was silence. So Lamentations is a rather depressing book. It's full of suffering, despair, and even complaints against God himself. Surely that can't be right. So people tend to skip over to chapter 3, where the hopeful bit is, because it makes them feel better. And yes, it does say that the, the faith, steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning in chapter 3. But have you read the first part of the chapter? 
This was not said when the sun was shining and everything was fine and rosy. Listen to the earlier verses. I am the one who has seen affliction under the rod of God's wrath. He has driven and brought me into darkness without any light. Against me alone he turns his hand again and again all day long. He has made my flesh and my skin waste away and broken my bones. He has walked, walled me about so that I cannot escape. He has put heavy chains on me. Though I call and cry for help, he shuts out my prayer. However, in verse 21, something changes, and he says, But this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul, therefore I will trust in him. What happened? Somehow the speaker's attitude has changed, and he has found hope and is able to wait patiently for the Lord's salvation. Having learned this, he even goes on in the next couple of verses to try and convince the rest of the suffering inhabitants of Jerusalem to follow the same path. He says, let us test and examine our ways and return to the Lord. Let us lift up our hearts as well as our hands to God in heaven. And the people even start to imitate him and confess to God, we have transgressed and rebelled. But then they falter and they can't continue. But you have not forgiven And then they pick up their lament again, blaming God himself directly for their situation. You have wrapped yourself with anger and pursued us, killing without pity. You have wrapped yourself with a cloud so that no prayer can pass through. You have made us filth and rubbish among the people. The people just cannot accept how a compassionate God would allow such suffering and not do something about it, preferably immediately. And you know, it's too easy to dismiss them and say that their suffering was the result of sin and well-deserved. Many commentators used to just say that. Although, yes, it was well-deserved. They had confessed their sin and been disciplined. Wasn't God supposed to forgive? And let's be honest, not all suffering is the result of sin. The innocent suffer too. The people of Israel never achieve any resolution in Lamentations. The book ends in uncertainty. And chapter 5 closes with the enigmatic lines, Restore us to yourself, O Lord, that we may be restored. Renew our days as of old, unless you have utterly rejected us. And get this, no messenger of God arrives to say, Cheer up, Israel, keep calm and carry on. Unlike the speaker in chapter 3, the Israelites are still struggling and questioning and trying to figure out how to get there from here how to get to faith and confidence from doubt and despair. I personally became interested in the Book of Lamentations when I went back to school as years as a high school teacher and to pursue biblical studies. You see, a few bombs have been dropped into my life too. And I gradually discovered that keeping calm and carrying on and pretending that everything is okay and smiling and singing songs of praise when I was suffering inside was unhealthy and dishonest. Saying, cheer up England to me, just didn't cut it. You see, the way from suffering and despair to joy and hope is often through lament. In spite of what some of the early scholars thought, Lamentations is not all about suffering as the deserved result of sin, or exclusively about the need for repentance and the patient acceptance of affliction, although, yeah, it does have something to say about that. It's also very much about the expression of pain and the validation of lament, even when it's the result of sin, and it isn't always by any means. 
It's about validating the psychological and spiritual need to express our uh, pain before we can move forward. It's certainly not God's will that we lament forever in some kind of eternal pity party, no. But we usually have to go through lament to move to joy. It's about getting from here to there. But how does it work? Why did the speaker of chapter 3 find resolution and the people didn't? It's no coincidence that about 65 of the 150 psalms model lament for us, and they can teach us about the process. On the slide is a diagram based on the work of Walter Brueggemann with a number of additions and revisions by Mark Boda that illustrate what he calls the cycle of lament. When God is in his heaven and all's right with the world, that's the stage of orientation. We are joyful, God rules, we have faith, the world is beautiful, and the future looks bright. Sooner or later, however, God allows suffering into our lives, even if he doesn't cause it, and we become disoriented. Disorientation is divided into two stages. The first is suffering. Sometimes we bring that suffering on ourselves due to sins of commission or omission. Actions have consequences, and sin often brings pain, sometimes sooner, sometimes later. We steal money, we end up in jail. We eat too much and exercise too little, we end up with health problems. Sometimes, however, we are innocent, and the suffering is brought on us by the sins of others or by circumstances beyond our control. Whether we suffer as innocent or guilty persons, however, we need to first acknowledge the pain, and we need to lament. Maybe occasionally we can smile and say, oh, praise the Lord anyway, and move on, but not always. And we even need to challenge God to say, how can you let this happen? Aren't you a God of love? When will you heal? Aren't you a God of mercy? How long must we suffer? Aren't you a God of forgiveness? Although these are, in a sense, critical of God, these accusations are also an act of faith. Because deep down, we know that God is loving and forgiving and merciful, and we call on him to act according to his character. We acknowledge that whoever is at fault, God is in control, and only he can bring salvation. We need to express the pain of the world being out of joint, as Hamlet said and admit that things are not as God intended them to be. Acknowledge the chaos of our lives before we can deal with it and move on. We can't short-circuit the whole process. You see, lament draws us closer to God and actually helps us to become more like God because our hearts break over the sin and suffering that also breaks God's heart. When this happens, God speaks into the situation. If we have sinned, he speaks words of rebuke or conviction. If we are innocent, he speaks words of comfort and empathy. After all, Jesus knows what innocent suffering is all about. This word from God may come through prayer, the words of a song, when scripture speaks to us, when the Holy Spirit convicts us or comforts us, through the words of friends, through specific circumstances, but it speaks to our heart. In the Psalms, this turning point often indicates an abrupt change in the psalmist's attitude. I've got two examples on the slide here. Something where the yellow butt is indicates that a change has taken place. It may be intangible, unspecified, but it is certainly there. God has spoken to the psalmist's heart. In the next stage, disorientation stage two, we are still unsettled, but we can now respond appropriately. 
If we have sinned, we need to respond with penitence. If we are innocent, we need to respond with trust. Penitence involves not only confession, but also repentance, a changing of our words and ways, a turning from sin. Trust involves acknowledging that God is still God. He is loving and merciful and forgiving, even in the midst of a broken world. That his kingdom is already, but not yet, inaugurated, but not fulfilled. Nevertheless, we have a hope and a future. Eventually, God acts. Not always as soon as we think he should, but he acts. If we have sinned, he forgives. We may still have to deal with the consequences of that sin, but he will walk beside us and give us grace as we slowly try to put our lives back together again. If we suffered innocently, he also gives us grace. He may give complete healing, but even if that does not happen, he walks with us through the pain, giving us the comfort of his presence until the day that creation is restored to what it should be. And one day you can be assured that this will happen. We enter the stage then of reorientation, where God rules again. And then sooner or later, the cycle is bound to repeat. You'll notice that not every psalm of lament includes the complete cycle. The darkest psalm, Psalm 88, never moves forward to uh, reorientation. This is because the psalms represent the real prayers of real people at different stages in their spiritual journeys. Sometimes it takes a long time to acknowledge sin or be willing to hear God's words of comfort. The process is not always easy, but it's possible. The same is true for lamentations. In the entire book, not God does not speak once, even through lament, though lament and confession have taken place. The people as a whole never move beyond disorientation, stage one even if the speaker in chapter 3 glimpses hope. Sometimes the process is a long one. Some hearts are resistant and difficult to reach. Kathleen O'Connor says of the end of Lamentations, in this final poem, God does not speak, the people do not acquire hope, and comfort eludes them. Well, in an absolute sense, she's correct. But the seeds of hope have been planted. Only in the later prophecies, such as those of Isaiah 61, do they reach full growth. Here Isaiah says, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me. He has sent me to bring good news to the oppressed, to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and release to the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn. They shall build up the ancient cities. They shall raise up the former devastations. They shall repair the ruins, the devastations of many generations. Eventually, the exile ended. Eventually, the people were restored to the land. Eventually, the temple was even rebuilt. And eventually, God sent his son to die for the sins of the world, to establish his kingdom, and to bring his people back into full relationship with him. In fact, you may know that Jesus himself quoted these words of Isaiah when he inaugurated his ministry. We can get there from here. Just keep calm and lament and lament and lament until we have expressed our pain and confusion at the world's chaos, and now we are ready to move forward and do something about it through the grace of God. Then God will speak into our lives about the need for confession and trust, and we can reorient our souls as we look forward to the present alleviation and the ultimate resolution of this world's brokenness 
when God establishes his eternal kingdom. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. Let's pray. Almighty God, you understand our suffering because you suffered too. You know all about the brokenness of the world. And you walk with us through our pain and suffering. Help us when we're most anxious and depressed and despairing, not to give up, but to turn to you and to pour out our troubles to you so that you can touch us with a word of grace and help us to move forward. Great is your faithfulness. Amen.